Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And welcome to part two of our Ethan Allen uh, topic, because he did many crazy things that people don't seem to know about. Uh, so in the first part of the story, we talked about his origins, how he came to lead a militia group called the Green Mountain Boys, who first were formed to go after uh, Yorkers, short for New Yorkers, in territory disputes in the New Hampshire grants. The New Hampshire Grants being what is modern day Vermont and how then this group, the Green Mountain Boys, went on to serve the colonists in the American Revolution in an effort to bring favor to their desire to make Vermont an independent state. And after taking forts on Lake Champlain from the British with his Green Mountain Boys and additional troops headed by Benedict Arnold, Ethan, who had been voted out as leader of the Green Mountain Militia, was still ready to fight on behalf of the colonies. And so he had volunteered to take part in an initiative to push the fighting up into Canada. After the successes at Ticonderoga and Crown Point, Allen really saw a clear path to move north, and he made his way toward the north end of Lake Champlain. Having gotten tired of waiting on some kind of decisive movement and having never gotten an official commission to make any battle plans, he decided that the next target should be Montreal. Yeah, he, I think we should be clear that Ethan Allen decided this. <laughs> there had been some discussion about it prior to that, but he really kind of took matters into his own hands because he was certainly a determined uh, and confident gentleman. And in June of 1775, so this is just a few weeks after he had led the troops that took Ticonderoga and Crown Point Forts, Allen began recruiting Native Americans and even embittered Canadians to join him in this this little plan. Uh, and so between June and September, he amassed his troops and he laid out sort of a battle plan. Uh, and this endeavor, I we probably don't have to, but I feel we should point out, was entirely foolhardy. For a number of reasons, aside from the fact that he was just kind of doing this of his own initiative, uh, Montreal knew what Allen was planning. He had not been secretive enough in his efforts to recruit people, and so word had gotten to Montreal that he was planning something. And moreover, uh, even though he had recruited a lot of these men, not all of them were really on board with his invasion plan. So it was really just beset by problems. Consequently, when he forged ahead into Montreal on September 25th, things did not go well. So as we said, they knew he was coming, and this plan was more impulsive than strategic. He thought that backup was going to come to assist him, but it never came. A lot of his recruits deserted, and the whole thing just went so poorly that Ethan was very easily captured. Yeah, it's a certain level of turnabout. He so easily took those the forts of Ticonderoga and Crown Point that it, then when he tried this more ambitious plan, it really fell apart and he was the one that was easily taken. Uh, because he was charged as a traitor to the British crown initially, he was shipped back to England for trial. And Ethan Allen actually wrote of his time as a captive after the fact, and these writings were used as war propaganda. Uh, in a passage from his work, A Narrative of Colonel Ethan Allen's Captivity, he describes attempting to negotiate a sort of kindness and fair treatment with his uh, captors and the manner in which he was forced to respond to the poor treatment that he received. So this is what he wrote. The reader is now invited back to the time I was put into irons. 
I requested the privilege to write to General Prescott, which was granted. I reminded him of the kind and generous manner of my treatment to the prisoners I took at Ticonderoga, and of the injustice and ungentlemanlike usage which I had met with from him, and demanded gentlemanlike usage, but received no answer from him. I soon after wrote to General Carlton, which met the same success. In the meanwhile, many of those who were permitted to see me were very insulting. I was confined in the manner I have related on board the schooner Gaspo, about six weeks, during which I was obliged to throw out plenty of extravagant language, which answered certain purposes at that time better than to grace a history. So basically, he uh, did a lot of swearing, profanity, and yelling, which I personally am going to call extravagant language going forward in my life because it sounds so nice, <laughs> rather than to admit that I threw a tantrum. Uh, and he just felt like, you know what, in the time, that's what was needed, and I told them off because I tried to be nice and they wouldn't acknowledge that. And I really love this passage because it sort of very quickly encapsulates this fiery part of her personality, which we've talked about a lot, but we haven't really had great examples of. Uh, and his narrative describes also a significant positive shift in his treatment once he was labeled as a prisoner of war rather than a, a traitor. And that happened because King George III had decreed that American prisoners should be labeled as such uh, and that way taken back to America to be held rather than being kept in England, which is where they would have to hold them as traitors. He remained a prisoner, kept first on a ship off the coast of New York, and then moved to Long Island on parole until May 6, 1778. And that's when he was released by British troops in exchange for one of their officers. So after Allen was released, he was appointed to the brevet rank of colonel by Congress, and he was awarded back pay for his time in captivity. But he did not actively serve in the military going forward from that. So a brevet rank is kind of an honorary situation, in case you did not know that. Before we move on to him returning to Vermont, let's take a moment for a word from a sponsor. That sounds grand. And now, back to Ethan Allen. So... Despite the service of Allen and his fellow settlers, the New Hampshire grants were still lumped in with New York, much to their dismay. Yeah, the uh, the Green Mountain Boys had ably fought for the freedom of the colonists from British rule, uh, both with Ethan Allen as their leader and later under Seth Warner. Uh, but there were officials who sort of thought it was just going to be best and easiest to simply maintain the same boundary lines for states that had existed prior to the war. And so this meant that the proposed state of Vermont, which was really what they were all fighting for, was still part of New York. So that was the absolute opposite outcome of what they had intended when they even joined this whole uh, effort in the first place. Meanwhile, Vermont had declared its independence in 1777 while Ethan was captive. And just a few months after his release in May of 1778, Allen, who had turned his attentions from military service to political negotiation, formally presented Vermont's claim for statehood to Congress in Philadelphia. That happened in September. But there was some tension. New York was a very powerful state, and Congress was not especially keen on going against New York's wishes. Yeah, and they were still, you know, dealing with the war effort. There were a lot of other things going on. But in the meantime, while the the um, fate of Vermont was kind of being hemmed and hawed about, both New Hampshire and Massachusetts were eyeing this land that was there, and they were kind of making their own claims on the disputed territory. 
And all of this unsettled land drama uh, kind of led Ethan Allen to do something that ended up being kind of controversial and may not have been the smartest move. During these territorial disputes, the governor of Canada was Frederick Haldimand. And in 1780, Ethan, along with his brother Ira and several other leaders, started a series of clandestine meetings and communiques with him. They were negotiating terms to make Vermont part of the British Empire. Yeah, things weren't going well with statehood, and they wanted their independence. So uh, the Vermont Assembly, meanwhile, was not privy to these discussions. This really was just a small group of men who had been leaders in various ways that were kind of opening this discussion. And so while the Assembly was still working to become the 14th state of the Union, that was their goal, Ethan Allen and his allies, it seemed, were actually undermining that work by kind of back-dealing with the British. Once these correspondences were revealed... The people involved claimed that they'd been acting out of a desire to prevent a British invasion and then put pressure on Congress to make Vermont a state in its own right. So they claimed that these negotiations were all subterfuge. But uh, the modern view is that, you know, even after the war ended in 1783 officially, some of these people were actually still having discussions about the possibility of Vermont becoming part of Britain with these people in Canada. So the whole, hey, we're totally just stringing them along to prevent an attack, you guys. We're totally cool. That line of reasoning kind of flies out the window. It's not a very valid excuse at that point because there was no attacking going on. Part of Ethan Allen's history that gets tangled up here and causes some problems uh, lies in the fact that he was approached during his time as a prisoner of war to serve as a spy for the crown. So it's generally believed that he never served in this capacity, but the fact that he was offered the chance to do so really colored the perception of his behavior in the negotiations with Haldimand. Yeah, he basically was seen as suspicious. They were like, oh, well, so you say you never betrayed us, but you had every opportunity to. Why wouldn't you? And you were doing this thing that was kind of dicey. Uh, So... The one thing that's interesting to note, though, is that while the business with Canadian officials and and in the broader sense, Britain, was often labeled as treason by members of Congress and the public, there were no formal charges of treason ever officially made to of Ethan Allen or any of the other men involved. Back in part one of this episode, we mentioned that Ethan's wife, Mary, died in 1783. And not long after, so did their couple's oldest daughter. They both died of tuberculosis. And uh, Ethan did mourn both of them, even Mary, uh, even though it's we mentioned in the first part that they really weren't said to have a particularly happy marriage. Uh, but he did not stay single for very long. In 1784, so the following year, uh, he met Francis Montresor Brush Buchanan. And Fanny, as she was called, was already a widow herself, even though she was only 24 years old when she met Alan. And at this point, he was 46 and, of course, a widower because Mary had died and he had several young children. The two of them got married just a few months after they met. And in contrast to Ethan's first marriage, the, this match really seems to have been a lot happier. Fanny was very well educated. She was interested in music and science, and she could and would converse with Ethan about his interests and was, by all accounts, an extremely calming figure in his life, which seems like a handy thing to have had around. Uh, he was given to impulsive behavior. He would curse people out when he was angry at them. And 
Fanny really just sort of chilled that part of him out a little bit. Uh, and the pair had three children together. So Fanny Margaret was born in 1784, the same year they married. Uh, Hannibal was born in 1786, and their son Ethan was born in 1787. Although Alan continued to work on Vermont's behalf, his political reputation had really taken a huge hit in the wake of that whole negotiation scandal, and he became less and less influential. So while he had been the perfect man to lead a ragtag group of militiamen to cede Vermont's independence, he just didn't have the finesse needed to actually govern and lead in times that required more diplomacy instead of brute force. Uh, yeah, so even though Fanny had 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 a, this calming effect on him, he still, you know, was the same man at heart. He was not one that liked to uh, uh, make deals that involve compromise. So his work, instead of uh, being so much in the political realm, began to focus instead on writing. And he went back to working on a project that he had begun years earlier with Thomas Young, who in our first episode we mentioned, he was a doctor that uh, Ethan Allen was friends with, and they had a, a rather... Uh, scandalous public variolation demonstration that resulted in them both being uh, charged because it was illegal at the time. So he ended up going back to the work that they had been doing together, and he ended up publishing a book entitled Reason, the Only Oracle of Man, or A Compendious System of Natural Religion, and that came out in 1785. And this book is largely a discussion of deism, which centers around morality and spirituality coming from a place of reason rather than being part of a structured and dogmatic religious order. Uh, you can predict how well that did. Oh, that was not well. His, <laughs> his criticism of both the Old and New Testaments really struck a sour note with a lot of people. Yeah, he really did kind of tear apart the Bible and, and you know, instead of sort of persuading through uh, some of the ways that he had used when he was younger, where he was really able to to make people see his point of view, he really kind of just took an attack approach and it, it definitely hurt him. Uh, but regardless of his book sales, he kind of went about his life. He and Fanny moved to Burlington in 1787 to live on the Winooski River, and he wrote while he was there. He did some farming, and he generally enjoyed peace and quiet with his family. Remember, he had a lot of new children at this point. The cause of his death is not entirely clear. He had gone out, and he was coming home in his sleigh across a frozen lake, and he either had a stroke or fell off the vehicle because he was intoxicated He died without ever regaining consciousness the next day, which was February 12th, 1789. He's buried in Burlington, Vermont, and two years after his passing, Vermont became a state. Yeah, he had worked for it his whole life, but he never got to see it in his lifetime, although they were close. Um, And just in case, we mentioned in the the top of the first part of this two-parter that uh, when you talk to most people, they hear the name Ethan Allen and they go, oh, the furniture guy. And they think that he was a carpenter or a furniture maker or somehow this was his company. It was not. Uh, so in case you are wondering about how he got tied in, in terms of the image with a large furniture company, that company was actually named after Ethan Allen when it was founded in the 1930s in Beecher, Vermont. They kind of, because he is sort of a, a, a hero in Vermont, and known for his tenacity and his clarity of vision, they thought that would be a good uh, sort of mascot of sorts for their their new company that they were going to put together. 
Well, and if you're also been wondering, as I have been, about Green Mountain Coffee, which I feel like I see everywhere now, uh, that also is headquartered in Vermont. Despite being uh, characterized as a cantankerous and impulsive person, Ethan Allen has really achieved folk hero status for Vermont. There's a statue of him that was given to the National Statuary Hall Collection in 1876. Yeah, and there is a... um, uh, uh museum, the Ethan Allen Homestead Museum. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes because they have a lot of source material. Uh, so yeah, he's sort of become famous and I think a lot of people, like I have a friend that uh, went to school in Vermont and she knew a lot about him but she was like the only person that really seemed to have a handle on the, the Ethan Allen story. <laughs> so he's he's worth talking about and like I said, I think, you know, he kind of as many other figures I seem to pick I don't do this on purpose they have these potentially really prominent places in history and then they kind of ruin them by being jerks in some way or angering the wrong person, sometimes through being a jerk. Uh, and I, I kind of feel like his his proclivity for yelling at people and kind of doing his own thing and making some foolish decisions kind of took away what possibly could have been an even bigger sort of image that people would remember outside of furniture. Yeah, my uh, first association was definitely the furniture company. <laughs> I think everybody's is, which is, you know, kudos to them. They've done great marketing through the years, but it has kind of obscured the the actual uh, image we have of the, the historical figure that it is named after. So I also have some listener mail. Uh, the first part of this episode, I read listener mail from someone who had sent us an actual parcel, and I'm doing the same thing again. So we've gotten a couple of really lovely parcels lately. Uh, and I want to acknowledge those because we appreciate them greatly. This one is from our listener, Karen, and she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I've listened to all of them with the exception of part two of one of your serial killers topics. I just don't sleep well after a topic like that, so I know you'll understand and forgive. Of course we will. Everybody has stuff that they're not comfortable listening to. Uh, I was hiking in the French Alps when I heard your podcast on La Scala Opera House. We had a planned stop in Milan, so I added the Opera House to our must-see list. Uh, you did the research, so you already know how amazing it is. We loved our tour. You would have loved the museum because it was filled with costumes and set design books. Enclosed, a few books I think you will love and two funny green packages. Have you seen these before? These are these little parcels, I'm describing them, of kind of these plasticky green envelopes. She says, they are provided free at the opera. You are expected to place your cigarette butt in the pouch instead of on the sidewalk. So it's kind of a little cigarette disposal packet. I've never seen them before, but uh, that's I delightful. In a very, I haven't smoked in a very long time, so I would not have been exposed to them. But the books she sent us are awesome. She sent us a um, a coloring book of uh, it's called Discover and Color, the Teatro alla Scala, and it's just a lovely book with these beautiful drawings in it that I will maybe photocopy in color, but I won't ever touch the original because I don't do that. Even as a child, I photocopied my coloring books like a big nerd. And then uh, another children's book about uh, a ballerina's costume for La Scala. And it's absolutely darling. The illustrations are so pretty. They're these really lovely watercolors. I love it. I love it. I love it. And she sent us this cool little 3D kind of pop-up paper model of the theater. So you get a sense of how it's laid out and where the seating is. So awesome. Thank you so, so much, Karen. I can't even tell you how much we appreciate treats like this. It's so fun. Now I want to thank the person who sent us those horrible histories, miniature figurines. And I, yeah, I've I've forgotten who sent us those. 
Yeah, we. I wish we could. Maybe we should figure out a way to thank everybody that sends us stuff because we do get some really wonderful and delightful little treats in the mail from time to time. And I know I haven't always been able to like loop back around and make sure they get mentioned on the podcast. Yeah, sometimes we open you- things and we get all excited, and then we don't write that down, and then <laughs> we forget the name of the person who said that, and it becomes. Yeah. Th- then we feel ungrateful. I feel ungrateful. Yeah, I try to keep all this stuff together, but what often happens to me is like just other work stuff will come up. There will be, you know, deadlines on articles that happen and I just that my gratitude is still there, but the remembering to express it sometimes gets pushed to the periphery because we're focused on other stuff and our workloads are shifting. So please know that we super appreciate anything that you guys send us. So if you've sent something and you're like, those jerks never thanked me, we really do appreciate it and we thank you. We just sometimes are jerks and we get busy and forget things. So that is all. <laughs> if you would like to send us an email, you can do that at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history, mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and on pinterest.com slash history. You can visit our store at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase shirts or bags or mugs or anything else that you feel will perfectly uh, show your love of history. And if you would like to do a little bit of research on a topic we discussed today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in the words prisoner of war in the search bar, and you will get how the rules of war work. So you will get maybe some insight into how that whole shift happened from traitor to uh, prisoner of war and how that treatment would have been different. Uh, you can also visit our history site, which is mistedhistory.com. If you want to listen to the shows, read the show notes, read an occasional blog, uh, or just check out pretty pictures that we've associated with all of the above. And if you want to research almost anything you can possibly think of, you can absolutely do that at our parent site, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 